Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, August 20th, and this is the weekly market update. As usual, the disclaimer, anything that you hear or see on this podcast or video is not to be taken as investment advice. It's for informational purposes only. Please do your own due diligence before making any investments. It's your money. It's your responsibility. Okay, before I get started, uh, again, I would like to just uh, ask for some help. I'm trying to push this uh, channel to 10,000 subscribers. If you want to help the channel grow, if you appreciate the work that we're doing, and uh, you know, a lot of people have been helping me out, subscribe, like, comment. Um, if you are interested in the investment ideas that we derive uh, from these type of topics that we talk about in these videos, we have the subscription service for the Actionable Intelligence Alert newsletter. It's $150 a year. You can uh, check out the subscription uh, link in the show notes. And uh, we also have a free email newsletter uh, that you can subscribe to in the show notes also or in the comment section. I try to put out a weekly email to kind of uh, focus on uh, potential investments. I don't give specific companies, but I talk about some big high level themes of what's going on. So some people have found that useful. That's grown to several thousand people. So if you're interested in those things, those things can support the channel. If you're listening on uh, a podcast, I don't know where you're listening to Spotify, Apple, wherever, uh, go and, uh, you know, make a comment or if you like it, of course, uh, you know, make comments, you know, however they do their, uh, how many stars or whatever, I don't know, but, uh, give us some feedback. You know, we, I pretty much read most of the emails that come in the feedback, uh, whether it's good or bad, I want to hear about it. So, uh, contact us if you are inclined. Remember the actionable intelligence alert newsletter is back up. I've been posting there. What I try to do there is put some, whatever I find interesting during the week, I will just throw it up there. I don't go into long form articles there. I will be writing a couple uh, in the future, in addition to some of the ones that are already on there. But I finally got that up and running again. So, uh, you know, check that out during the week. I think you can sign up on there. I'm not sure if it's working, but um, I think you can sign up to be updated. So getting this thing back up to speed and getting everybody, uh, you know, letting everybody know what we're doing. So appreciate the... Uh, the help on that. And uh, like I said, we want to crack that 10,000 subscriber. Uh, we're like 9,300, 9,400 right now. So uh, help us out if you uh, are so so inclined. Okay. So obviously, you know, we're going to keep talking about energy. One thing I would point out before we get into the slide deck is I just saw that the Goring and Rosenzweig quarterly update came out and I only got about halfway through it uh, when I made the video. So I didn't have time to incorporate some of the information from uh, that report into this. But again, they did a good job. What I really liked about it was they talked about uh, specifically about the lack of investment, specifically around the super majors. And I found that very interesting. The other thing I found interesting, and I'll talk more about that in an upcoming video or maybe a short uh, thing on the website. Um, Peter Thiel and another guy, uh, well, this entrepreneur started a fund, an ETF, if you will, it just came out like last week. 
and it was uh it's called uh i forget what it's called but the symbol is d-r-l-l i think or d-r-i-l or something like that but basically it's more of a you know you've had this proliferation of esg mandates coming from the likes of larry fink at blackrock and and these small shops that buy like a few shares and they get blackrock and all these you know the state pension funds to back them to force you know uh shell and exxon and chevron to you know invest in things that have nothing to do with oil and gas extraction or refining of petrochemicals but uh you know this these guys uh, are trying to flip that on its head so um i'm actually reading the one guy's book he's an indian guy i can't remember his name but i'll, I'll talk more about that in the future because like this is what i like this disruption this uh pushing back this creating uh parallel uh economies this type of thing so more to come on that i kind of like the whole uh, concept of what these guys are talking about uh the other thing is uh um is i found it very interesting in the in the gordon rosenzweig uh write up this this quarter or last quarter for the quarterly write-up they do um they were talking about some of the investments that were being made by like chevron and stuff that were you know foisted upon them by these activists uh, you know, that are trying to get everybody to go carbon neutral and all this nonsense when it's carbon-based world. But anyways, um, it just shows that, like, again, it gets back down to why aren't they already doing this? Are they evil? Why don't they see, you know, the activists, you know, why don't they, why doesn't Chevron just recognize this and just do it voluntarily? Because it doesn't make sense economically, that's why. And if you look at it from an energy density and an energy return on energy invested, it's not going to work. I find it interesting that all these schemes, um, they don't produce enough energy to have civilization in the manner we have it now. You know, when you put a, just on a tangent here, just in general, if you go and drill an oil well or a gas well, your return on energy invested, because you're putting energy into that endeavor. You have to get the rig out there. You got to rig up. You got all the, bring all the supplies out there, the sand, the pipe everything else that's all diesel yada 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 so your return on energy invested is about 30 you know 30 to 1 you're getting 30 units of energy back from that well than you are getting from the one unit of energy that you put in the problem with these other things and and rosen's what gnr go into this in the write-up which i think is outstanding this is something that michael kelly talked about in our video our interview that we did like a couple years ago maybe it was a year ago uh the, the energy return on energy invested for all these schemes is like three or three and a half to one. And the problem is, is that in order to have the uh, civilization that we have, in order to do all these fun things like go to Mars and live in the way we do and have the diversity of, you know, products and stuff that we have, it's because we have excess energy. You know, there are textbooks out there which i've talked about in the past about how things were in medieval times there was no excess of energy that's why it was hard to make uh progress because most of human endeavors were dedicated to growing food and fodder crops for the draft animals that helped uh do the farming and so there was no excess energy there was no excess uh there was no excess wealth being created because there was no excess energy to allow for proliferation of sciences and building and all these things. So that's why you had such slow economic progress. That wasn't the only reason, of course, feudalism and other things. But, you know, once we got 
we saw the advent of the steam engine and things like this and more using more dense energy sources, you just saw, you know, wealth creation take off. And that is the main thing that a lot of these activists are missing. It's not that they don't, these people don't want to do it. If these things worked, they would do it. And so that kind of segues into what the Saudi Aramco CEO said recently. Uh, here's a snippet from the last call that they had, or actually from the last conference call. And I put this quote up here, we are on the right side of reality. And I think it's very important because there is a lack of living in reality with a lot of people when it comes to energy and what and how dependent we are on it and how everything that we do is a derivative of how much energy we, we have access to. And so it goes on here to say, quote, our focus remains on providing the reliable, sustainable and affordable energy the world needs. Some might ask, why are we so deeply committed to growth and reliability when others are calling for reduced investment in oil and gas? Some fear that anyone who continues to produce oil will be on the wrong side of history. To them, I say that we believe we are on the right side of reality. He didn't say history, he said reality, because they get it. Just look at the challenges the energy markets have faced in recent months. I love this quote here. If alternative energy sources could have shouldered the burden, they would have. But ambition is still years ahead of reality. Longer term, we know the rest of the world will not transition at the same speed as the developed world. This is where most of humanity lives. That's in the developed world. Most of the roughly 2 billion new energy consumers on the planet by 2050 will be living there too. In short, we know the world is going to need energy from hydrocarbons for many decades to come. That is why we will never back down from our responsibility to the billions of people around the world who depend on us. Our commitment to an orderly and sustainable energy transition. So this is exactly right. This is, this is you know, now you could say that, well, he's the CEO of Saudi Aramco. What do you expect him to say? They sell oil and gas and petrochemicals and derivatives of, of oil. But is, is it wrong? I mean, what we've seen in the, in the West you know, this ties back into the whole, which I don't have time to get into in this particular video, the whole bifurcation and thought and, uh, you know, the move from the unipolar world to the multipolar world and the collective West, if you will, call it, you know, the OECD countries, Western Europe and the Anglosphere um, have lost their minds. They want to have force this energy transition. You know, you can get into why that is conspiracy, whatever. Uh, but the rest of the world's not going to go there. They can't go there. They don't have the capital. They don't have the ability to do that. And so they are going to continue to use hydrocarbons of all forms for many, many decades. And so, you know, I, I love, you know, what it says here is that, you know, that, that, that you're, on, you're either going to be on the right side of reality or the wrong side. And it's going to be detrimental to your investment uh, returns if you're on the wrong side. You know, it goes back to what Doomberg has said many times in the battle between physics and politics, physics always wins. So, you know, I say this in the context of, you know, the United States passing this Inflation Reduction Act or whatever with all these SOPs in it for uh, all of these constituencies of the Democratic Party. That's fine. That's not going to do anything. We already know it's not going to do anything except for make energy more scarce and more expensive. And so it goes back to what we've said before here. We are not sitting there making legislation. I'm not a senator. I'm not the president. No one cares what I say. Uh, it doesn't matter what, what you think individually. 
they're going to try to do this in the West. Okay, fine. Heads I win, tails I win more. Uh, they don't have the materials to do it. They don't have the capital to do it. They're going to try it anyways. They're going to uh, use uh, government power uh, and the monopoly on violence to strangle uh, hydrocarbons as much as they can in the West. And so you're just going to have higher energy prices. So what side of reality do you want to be on? Show me the laboratory of a major country. Don't show me Costa Rica. I don't care about or Norway with the hydropower. Show me a major industrialized country that run that has a pathway to running on 100% renewables. The major country, industrialized country in the world that tried it and is still trying it and flubbed it is Germany. Okay? They are in an energy crisis. They spent $600 billion on renewables. What have they got? You know, from what I understand, I didn't put a slide up this week, but they are going to, I saw an announcement that they did in fact say they're going to keep the last three reactors running. Okay. But then I saw another press release. You know, I saw that in the Wall Street Journal. And then I saw a press release from some official at the Ministry of Energy in Germany to say that wasn't correct. So I'm not exactly sure if they're keeping them on or not. What I would say to you is that there's a definite energy crisis that was in effect even before this invasion. Now it's been exacerbated by the political situation uh, between Russia and Western Europe. And I think there's a real fear among European elites that, you know, if this, I mean, if you look at some of the numbers, we had record, again, electricity prices. Uh, we have record I mean, you, article after article, I've been showing you where uh, the energy costs are impoverishing large, large numbers of European uh, residents. I mean, a third of the population in Britain is going to be thrown into poverty conceivably. Uh, these types of talks, you know, and, and we can say, well, you get what you deserve. But this, you know, if you're sitting there in government, are you, I, you know, you saw what happened in Sri Lanka. And you say, well, we're, we're, we're civilized, we're Western Europeans, we're cultured. You know, I think there's, you know, is there a developing fear amongst the governing elite in Europe that they could get Sri lanka They could get the Sri Lanka treatment? So, you know, they're not out of the woods and they haven't solved the problem. And like I said, it's, it's just a patchwork of, you know, band-aids that's not going to work. And so we'll see how it ends. But I thought this was fascinating because this is exactly what I agree with. It's going to be, you're going to be using fossil fuels and they're going to be, the demand for them is actually going to grow for decades. It's not going away. You can't, you cannot have civilization. When I say, when somebody says we're going to net zero, first of all, I need them to define what that means because this is a carbon-based world. But if I, I get a sense of what they're talking about, how many billions of people do you want to die? That's the question. It can be done, guys. It can be done. But how many billions of people do you want to die? And people say, well, that's hyperbole. You know, no, it's not. Study it. What enables the row crop agriculture that we use to feed the world when we've had consistently growing yields over time because of the chemical inputs, fertilizers, which are fossil fuel based? I mean, I was listening to a podcast the other day and somebody was quoting Vaclav Schmiel, the book. I can't remember which book it was that he wrote. But it was talking about like, okay, if you want a pound of shrimp delivered or at your grocery store, this is how many liters of diesel it, it takes to do that. If you want, you know, it's different types of foods, uh, this is how many liters of diesel. So like I've said before, you're eating 
hydrocarbons. You know, and people don't have this, they don't really have this understanding. So um, I think we're on the right side of this thing, notwithstanding the short-term fluctuations of the market and the volatility in the market. Uh, in the long run, the gr hydrocarbons are going to grow, demand's going to grow. And yet, as we're going to show in subsequent slides, the investment is not growing. So we keep repeating ourselves here, but it's falling into place, guys. So here's the OPEC uh, CEO. We just heard from the Saudi Aramco CEO. Here's OPEC CEO sees high risk of an oil price squeeze this year. And again, people will say, well, these guys are just talking their book, yada, yada, yada. Hey, I'm just telling you what, the, I'm just reporting what these people are saying. You know, the CEO of Aramco and the CEO of OPEC. Global oil markets face a high risk of a supply squeeze this year as demand remains resilient and spare production capacity dwindles, the new head of OPEC said. Fears over slowing consumption in China and the wild, wider world, which have pushed crude prices 16% lower this month, have been exaggerated, OPEC Secretary General Hotham al Gaius said in an interview with Bloomberg Television. Quote, we are running on thin ice, if I may use that term, because spare capacity is becoming scarce, unquote. The likelihood, the likelihood of a squeeze is there. And I've heard some other analysts say the same thing. You know, we're in a position now... We continue to see inventory shrinking, okay, at least in the U.S. And yes, I acknowledge that, you know, we have Europe in a recession and the United States is probably in a recession now. China's in a self-imposed recession. And yet you would expect that prices would crash. Now they're off the uh, invasion highs of 130 bucks a barrel, but we're still, you know, above 90 on WTI uh, and Brent's like 95, you know, at those kind of, um, prices, the cash flows uh, for the oil producers are, are still very high. You know, we just saw that Buffett just increased his, he wants to increase, filed the paperwork, he's going to increase his stake up to 50% in Occidental Petroleum. Probably going to end up just taking the whole thing over. You know, the thing's a 25% cash flow yield at the current oil price. And you, you, he can see this, what we're talking about, just like, you know, we've been talking about. That we're going to have it. This is going to be a decade-long problem or longer. Okay, this is not going to get solved in the next year or two. Okay, and so what happens is we went over it last week about you know what happens when the SPR uh, goes away, what happens when China comes back online, what happens when the United States Fed flips and starts stimulating again because you know you're going to have your third quarter in a row of recession now. The leading indicators are down five months in a row. We're in a recession, guys. It's eventually going to be acknowledged, okay? And so, you know, we've talked about all that before. I don't want to get into that again uh, this week. But this is, you know, this is the head of OPEC and the, Saudi, and the head of Aramco. You would have never heard them talking like this 10 years ago. They, they were not out there like this. I mean, the bottom line is, how else can they say, they don't have the spare capacity without just, you know, sending you a, you know, email about it. I mean, they don't have the capacity to pick up the slack. Okay. And so uh, as we, you know, we're getting into what they call the shoulder season after Labor Day, the summer's over, driving season, you should be building inventories and switching from refineries, making gasoline, to start making heating oil for when the winter comes. And, you know, we're still seeing inventories decline. We're not seeing the builds that we, I mean, there was a huge draw this last week. It was, it was humongous. 
And it was totally, you know, people were not anticipating it. So even this is really getting back to what I said before, you know, with the insufficient investment from an extractive industry, you know, that's another thing that Goring and Rosenzweig talk about. That's why you should really read their report, go there and read it. Um, I'll talk about it more. I'll make another video probably during the week about this because it's that important. But they talk about different time periods, like uh, even in, during the Depression, when resource markets outperformed the stock and bond market because something similar happened. Insufficient investment in commodities led to shortages. So, you know, it's like Jim Rogers said in one of his books many years ago. Uh, I used to be a big fan of his, well, I still am, but I read one of his books. He said, you know, you can have commodities go up during an economic uh, decline simply because of the fact that the supply shrinks faster than the demand. And that's the situation I think we could be in. So, um, like I said, I don't know what's going to happen in the short term, the volatility it's there. Uh, what I do know is just about every company that I follow in the portfolio, uh, especially like the oil services companies and the actual oil producers, every one of them is super bullish on their business. The, a lot of the companies that we own, uh, are going to be cash flow positive down to $45, $50 a barrel. Um, they've paid down their debt, so they're out of the woods. They can they can get through a period of lower prices during a recession. And so that's just going to exacerbate the problem, right? Because there's not going to be investment. So the oil field services companies are all predicting an upswing. And, you know, coming out of one of the worst depressions, you have a less amount of companies with less people, with less ability to service the business when it comes back, which it is starting to come back. So lots of things happening, lots of opportunity. So here's, you know, uh, a guy I follow on Seeking Alpha. He, you know, here's the U.S. big four storage, crude oil with SPR plus gasoline plus distillates plus jet fuel. And you see previous years, right? 2018 to 2021, you know, you kind of had these, uh, you know, obviously inventories went up during 2020 during the lockdowns, but you see typically what you would see during normal years, uh, this is what you would, this is what you would see. And uh, look where we're at now. We are way outside the five-year norm and still heading lower in the midst of this recession that we're supposedly in. So this is, this is telling, this is telling you something, Okay. Uh, eventually the recession ends eventually china comes back online eventually the spr ends and then what i would suggest to you like i've suggested before that sometime during this decade oil prices probably in the next couple of years or less oil prices are going to make a new all-time real high i mean i don't i don't see any reason why we won't see oil over 200 dollars a barrel at some point because price will have to rise to ration demand Here's the problem, right? Uh, here's your basically North Sea. The easy oil has been found and produced. This is the problem. So even with more spending, you're not going to get the same bang for the buck because you have to go, you know, when you're going to go out and produce oil and gas, you're going to produce the low hanging fruit first. So here's what you have, you know, here's the uh, North Sea. Here's these time periods back in the day, 55 years ago. That's when I was born, right? 1967. Here was the uh, average discovery size. And then as the decades went on, the discovery sizes shrunk because you've picked all the easy fruit. Here's the North Sea, the Norwegian Sea, the Barents Sea. Same thing what you're seeing. You're seeing less 
recoverable resources because you're having to go into you know smaller oil fields deeper more complex this costs more money so even though you may be spending more money in real terms your product your your return is low okay because you're you're having to you know as you look at some of these seventh generation drill ships that can drill like in you know twenty thousand feet of of water that's just before the drill even gets to the bottom of the ocean then it goes another ten thousand feet or whatever so this is just amazing the technology and those things are expensive right those things are getting you know five hundred thousand dollars a day right now and those those are all booked up all those uh big drill ships that are uh the the, the newest biggest baddest sh ships so this is what the problem is right the easy oil has been found and produced so we are running into headlong into a crisis so here's an article uh i'll put a link to most of these articles that uh so you can look at them I find it interesting. We've been talking about some of these things for almost two years now, and you started seeing more big name people start getting, you know, figuring out what we've been talking about. But I just thought this was interesting. This is, uh, you'll see this article, uh, I don't know, some uh, consulting group or something, but it basically says uh, the, the, the name of the article was, or the title of the article was, The Oil Market is Tighter Than You Think. World oil demand growth in 2022 is revised downwards, but still shows a tight supply demand balance with a rising call on OPEC and growth of 3.1 million barrels per day in consumption, including the recently observed trend of burning more crude in power generation. That's we've talked about that before in the summer in the Middle East. Uh, they burn uh, oil for power generation for air conditioning. According to Deloitte, the global upstream industry will need to invest a minimum of $3 trillion during 2016 to 2020 to ensure its long-term sustainability. So that means they that didn't happen, okay? That, that, that's the whole point here. That didn't really happen for all the reasons we've talked about in the past. So that means there is at least a $2 trillion funding gap in the industry uh, because of balance, if, if we consider balance sheet requirements, debt maturities and estimated cash flow. So we have a two, you know, that's what we've talked about before, somewhere between, depending on who you want to listen to, one to two trillion dollar funding gap. Okay, that's why we're in the situation we're in. Um, that was a little convoluted. I don't know what happened there. But anyways, that's the point there. Oh, we just haven't spent the money and now we're going to have to pay the piper. Over the past five years, most global energy companies have had to slash investment in some cases by more than 50%, driven by environmental activism, regulatory and political pressure, as well, or, as well as lower access to credit. Banks have limited the funding of oil and gas due to political and even central bank pressure at the ECB, for example, has included environmental requirements in their analysis of banks. We've also seen lawsuits, well, a lawsuit was dismissed in the United States, but it went forward in the Netherlands where we've talked about that, maybe that was like six months ago or maybe eight months ago where, uh, Shell has to uh, do a certain amount of investment or divestment or split its uh, company or whatever to meet these mandates that are just being put in place by activist judges who are being influenced by politics. And so, you know, if this was just a one-off in one country, it wouldn't be a big deal. But like I said, this is cumulative, right? You're seeing this everywhere. Um, you're seeing this uh, ESG movement where banks are saying, we're not going to invest in hydrocarbons. 
Um, insurance companies, we're not going to insure. Uh, you have the central bank and ECB, you know, you have, you're getting graded on your ESG scores on your lending. Um, and so you're, this is something we've talked about in coal, but is indicative across the energy complex, unless of course you're, you know, investing in wind and solar. So this is one of the things I want to talk about. Um, this, these oil bull markets, they don't just last like a month or two or six months. Um, they're usually decade long situations. And the reason why is due to the long-term uh, investment cycles, you know, the investment cycles are so capital intensive and so complex and take such a long time that once they start, you know, what happens, right? You have that over, under supply of a market, the price goes up, you get super normal profits that draws capital. That's how capitalism works. Those are the price signals that would stimulate people to, or capitalists to put money in the situation. But now we've skewed everything with all of the mandates, with all of the uh, regulations, uh, things of this nature. And so, you know, the typical bull market, this was back in the 70s after you had the uh, Arab-Israeli war and the Arab oil embargo, which was here, but you see, you started the decade at, you know, 30 bucks a barrel and ended up, you know, well over 100, well, 140, okay? So this this obviously was affected by the, uh, the Arabs, you know, doing what they did because of the Arab-Israeli war. So uh, what I'm trying to get to is that we had three recessions in that decade, and yet oil prices, you know, went up five times. What does that do to the service companies? What does that do to the actual oil companies that are producing? So I think, you know, if you have the ability to trade around the world, like I do, like you should, if you are smart, if you're not limiting yourself just to your home country, then you can pick and choose where you go because the whole world's not going to shut down. You know, you see what's happening in Brazil with Petrobras. I mean, I think it, the current dividend yields like over 20% and they're, have this big investment boom going on. Um, you know, there's companies that trade in Singapore that do oil field service, offshore services too, if, if you're too worried about, you know, what's going on in Europe or things like that. So the point is, is these things take at least a decade to resolve just because it's so, the pro, the, 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 the deal is so big and such a lead time for, for, for getting the capital together, getting the rigs together, the people, and like I've said, we've atrophied the, the oil field services industry because we went through the, one of the worst depressions ever or the worst in, in that sector. And so even if you want to turn everything back on, what are you going to turn on? People have left the industry. Rigs and material have been allowed to deteriorate or been retired or scrapped. Who's going to, even when business does return, who's going to want to just go out there and just start spending money like crazy, like in the past? Okay, so I think, like I've said before, um, and we can go to another decade, which you'll remember, it's, you know, this is uh, 1999 to 2014. Here's the great financial crisis. You see the oil price. I think this is inflation adjusted numbers, by the way. Uh, and I did get this out of the Gordon and Rosenzweig uh, report. But you see, you know, even during the great financial crisis, yeah, you had this drop in one year, but look what happens, okay? It comes right back because as we've said, oil is such a um, 
we didn't have, even during this time, we didn't have the type of deficits that we have now. And so you started the decade, basically, this was during the whole China growth phase and things like that. But you started the decade at 20 bucks a barrel and, you know, you spiked to almost over 180 and you still, even after the drop, you still had another six years where you're over a hundred dollars a barrel. So do you see the opportunity? Do you see the long-term potential here? Do you see what's going on? This is why we don't need to worry about, you know, I mean, even it went to 60 here and then dropped during this recession after the, you know, uh, 2001 recession it dropped from 60 to 40. You know, that's a 30% drop, but you see what happens. It comes right back. So the, 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 the demand for these things is, is relentless. The extractive nature of the business requires constant investment. And even though I'm showing you these two examples, these were in times where we didn't have the constraints that we have now. So what I'm saying to you is I think that the upcoming or the current market that we're in, yes, we could have a drop in the, in the, during these recessionary times. I don't know how bad the recession will be. I don't know what the Federal Reserve is going to do. Difficult to say. But I do know that uh, I think that you can forget about interest rates. It's things like that in government policy. Energy is going to be the regulator of the economy going forward the access to energy and the price. I think you're gonna see more fluctuations in price and a longer upward trend that's gonna last longer than these previous cycles. That's what I'm trying to get at. I'm just trying to show you that don't get, don't get ran out, don't get run out of the market just because you have a recession. I mean, we're not, I don't think we're in a great financial crisis. This is what we're probably looking at, something like this. And we're already down, what, 30, we're already down 30 some odd percent from the highs. Um, so maybe we're trying to find a bottom now, uh, but you see what happens. It comes back, okay? So patience is required. Like I said, if you look at the companies, if you look at the, the insiders are buying their own stock, they're paying down debt. Uh, even if they do have a recession, they'll sail right through it because of the uh, financial uh, conservatism that's overtaken most of these companies. Okay, wanted to point this out again, you know, uh, Japanese support for a nuclear restart is at its highest since Fukushima. And a first for, for Japan since the Fukushima nuclear disaster in 2011, public support for a nuclear restart is now at more than 60%. So a majority of Japanese uh, are in support of a nuclear restart, said a former executive director of the IEA. Um, this was attributed to the possibility of serious problems by the end of this year. Yeah, the fact that they could have blackouts. Remember, uh, you have all everybody competing for natural gas and there's not enough, right? Enough LNG. And so coal's in shortage now. And so, you know, if you're a country like Japan that relies 100% on imported energy, then you can't just sit there and not consider these reactors that are sitting there ready to go. So this, uh, he added that Japan wants to secure energy supplies, but also work toward reaching carbon neutrality by 2050 and striking that balance could prove increasingly challenging. You know, this is kind of funny, this whole thing about everybody kind of, when they talk about doing something that's not politically correct, like turning reactors back on or burning more coal for longer, they always so, say that, you know, we have to do it within the context of reaching our carbon neutrality goals. It kind of reminds me of like during the uh, pandemic, when people would say, uh, I'm against the uh, vaccine, 
I'm against this current coup vaccine, but I'm not an, they would always qualify. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. Okay. It's the same thing here. You know, we have to, we're going to burn more coal. We're going to turn these reactors back on, or we're going to extend the time before we make this transition. Uh, but we have to do this inside the context of the balance between carbon neutrality in 2050, which is, you know, 28 years from now. No, you better be worried about the next 20 months in most of these countries. Because like I said, you're going to get the Sri Lanka treatment if you have these blackouts all over Europe and these developed countries. There we go. India may delay coal plant closures. India's government is studying a slower retirement of aging coal-fired power plants as it also adds newer sites. A move that would keep fossil fuel capacity higher for years and potentially stall efforts to hit climate goals. Again, in the choices between hitting the climate goals in 2050 and staying in power during the next election cycle, what do you think is going to get selected? I'll leave that to the listener to answer for himself or herself. India currently has about 204 gigawatts. That's like 204,000 megawatts of coal power capacity. And the plans under discussion would see that total expand to more than 250 gigawatts over the next decade, according to two people, two of the people who asked not to be named as the discussions are private. No final decisions have been made, the people said. I would suggest that the coal plants will get built. Now, again, India has announced it's accelerating its nuclear development, but why, is, why aren't they, you know, just building more solar and wind farms? You know, they're going to do that too, if you read the article. They, don't worry, they're going to do that. But, you know, in the meantime, I mean, people, people that actually get it, get it, you know, and I think as this multipolar world develops, the, the necessity for people to pretend is going to go away. I mean, you have people like Modi that's trying to keep a foot in each, you know, trying to see where it's going to go. People have people want to see what's going to happen. Is are uh, is the Anglo-Saxon Zionist banking cartel that's running the world for the last 150 years going to prevail over the East, Russia and China and these things? If they do, then they want to be able to pivot back. But if they don't, they want to be able to pivot. And so you're seeing a lot of this qualifications. But in the meantime, you have to do what you have to do. You know, the globalist order is de is in decline, the globalism, and now people ha are more flexing back towards, you know, national interests. You know, I've been elected to represent this country, and the I have to look out for the interests of the country that I'm elected for, in this case, India, rather than worry about the entire world. That's why you see India buying discounted and crude. So there's a lot of things that are in play here. They're geopolitical things, uh, historical things. We're in a fourth turning. So a lot of these things come into play. But I find it interesting, like I said, and amusing that we're still, you know, having these pretend qualifications about, well, we have to do this, but inside the context of, you know, meeting our climate goals in 2050. And so here you go. Here's Glencore smashes coal profits record in six, just six months. Okay, so this is the coal earnings for Glencore for the year, for the year, uh, each year from 2013 till last year. And this is just six months this year. I'm telling you right now, coal is going to be a major winner this decade, for at least this decade. Um, the fact that, you know, coal keeps the lights on, as they say in West Virginia. And we've, at least in the West, doing everything we can to strangle coal supply. I mean, if you're, like I said before, if you have legacy coal mines, if you have the ability to mine and supply coal, 
then you're going to be sitting in the cuckoo bird seat going forward just because, uh, you know, you have something that the world requires. And like I said, at least in the West, yes, I think there'll be, you know, more coal being mined in Russia and China and these places, but it won't be sufficient. And so if you do have the ability to mine and export, you're going to make tremendous amounts of money, as Glencore has demonstrated their six-month earnings for 2022 of the coal division are the highest they've ever been and beat any annualized uh, result for the last basically 10 years. So this should tell you why if you're a coal investor, just be patient. It's going to happen. It's happening. Cash flows are huge. You know, in the context of some of the companies that were on the verge of bankruptcy, they're rapidly paying down debt. And once they get the debt paid down, again, it's that it's the old Tony Montana problem in Scarface. There's so much cash coming in, you know, that's the big problem. What what to do with all the cash? Well, we know from the Walter Schloss investment methodology that I follow, uh, there's three things can be done with cash, right? That I want done for cash that are beneficial to the shareholder. Pay down debt, buy back stock and pay dividends. That's it. You're not going to buy be starting new coal mines. So that's what's going to happen. So just have to be patient. It will happen. Do I think coal prices stay elevated? They're high right now, but I think they probably settle down to a higher high level, you know, sustained level that's higher than they were in previous years. So this, this is the kind of things that, you know, anecdotally, oh, they might be a one-off, but if you look across the industry, you see the same thing among many of the, of the coal producers. So I put this on here. There's Germany's PPI and CPI. They just 37% PPI, 37% PPI in Germany. I mean, this is, and there's no, the ECB is not raising rates. They, I mean, this is crazy. Here's the uh, CPI. Uh, I mean, how massage are these numbers? This is mostly because of energy, because of electricity and natural gas. But like I said, you know, because energy is inculcated in everything, it's going to, you know, companies will try to, they won't immediately, they didn't immediately pass through the cost, but they'll have to at some point or they'll go bankrupt. I mean, I saw a invoice, somebody had it on Twitter. Where was it? It was in Italy. And it was a guy that ran a business. It was an acquaintance of the person that made the tweet and they showed electric bill from last year and an electric bill for this month this year and it was 10 times higher and i'm not talking like the guy ran a manufacturing business and i think the bill last year was 8000 8, euros and it was like 80 or 90000 euros okay this month and the guy basically said i can't keep the business running like this this is crazy and so i don't think we've seen the full effect of that and that's why i say when i say you know these governments have to be worried we've already seen you know the right wing parties are going to come to power in italy Johnson out, Macron in this parliament, it went, uh, you know, his party didn't win. The the pro-EU government in Estonia fell. This is just the beginning, folks, if this doesn't get solved. This is just the beginning. It won't necessarily just be right-wing. It'll be populist uprising, both left-wing and right-wing. And, you know, is this Davos's real plan? Because are they going to control some left-wing or right-wing uh, populists? I don't think so. So people say, well, this is engineered. Engin this is really engineered by who? Because this, is, this looks like total chaos to me. And if you look at the decisions that are being made by the people in the EU, 
they really thought they thought when they put these sanctions on Russia, I mean, was that the plan? This is all part of the master. This is the 4D chess. Okay, so what's the end game? Collapse the governments and then what? Having having Bastille Day in the streets. Davos man thinks he's going to survive that. I don't think so. And so another thing I wanted to point out, we're getting near the end here of this video, but even in the midst of crisis, the ascent of man, the long-term chart for 10,000 years that goes from the lower left to the upper right is in effect. Yes, you're going to have, you look at all these uh, events throughout history, uh, Suez Canal crisis, Cuban Missile Crisis, this is how the market's corrected, stock market crash in 87, Asian crisis, end of the tech bubble, financial crisis in 2008. These are all five years down the line, you're up. So this is the whole point, guys. If you're buying good cash flowing companies, and I'm not just talking about the cyclicals, those are a different story, those speculations we're in. But you know, buying and holding good quality companies and having dry powder to invest in them uh, will yield you results. And if you, if you can step in when everybody else is panicking, like on the left column here, this is what you can anticipate down the line. This is how real long-term wealth is created. So uh, I just wanted to point this out. I thought it was an excellent chart. Uh, you keep this you know, in mind because you see that everything's temporary, right? You're constantly going to have something wacko happening, something knocking the market down, fear and pessimism and sediment swings from negative, from positive to negative. And then if you can step in at the point of, you know, maximum pessimism, that's how the real, and that's the re, that's one of the main factors of why um, most people are not successful because they don't have the ability to do that. Okay. And I'm going to, I have found a white paper that somebody wrote. It was a colleague, I think of Buffett's, but basically the guy goes over like, he gave the speech to, I think it was a gla another graduating class of MBAs or something, or investment managers. And it was basically why you're not going to be Warren Buffett. And a lot of it was about the emotional quotient, not having the ability to control your emotions and be able to step in and buy when the market's down 50%. Knowing that if you can do that, that three to five years down the road, no one's even going to, it's going to look like a little squiggle on a long-term chart. OK, I'm going to I'm going to put that up. A lot of people don't like those. You know, I fall into that, too. I'm no I'm not Warren Buffett. I'm not top notch investor. I'm trying to do the best I can. But I consistently see the the ability to control emotions and to step into the breach when when the pessimism is the max is how the real wealth is created. And then to be able to sit there and just let time work. So I think this is indicative of that. And uh, like I said, I'm, I'm going to write that up and put it on the website uh, when I get a chance. But I thought that was a great white paper. I'll f I have it saved in my uh, files. And I will, uh, because I think there was like five or six reasons why you won't be Warren Buffett. And basically, a lot, of, I think three out of the five were really around controlling your emotions and the ability to uh, overcome your, your, your own uh, irrationality, shall we say. All right, guys, that's it for this week. Again, appreciate the support. Uh, the channel continues to grow. Uh, newsletters available. Uh, help the channel, guys. Like, subscribe, comment. 
send it to your friends, whatever. Uh, appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk to you next week.